Thank you. Okay, you can look. There's all kinds of announcements in the bulletin. One of them has to do with Christmas boxes, Operation Christmas Child. How many of you have never done a Christmas box for Operation Christmas Child? Anybody here? Okay, just a couple of sinners. I mean, a couple of people. <laughs> so these, uh, these, there's inside your bulletin, there's an insert that talks all about it. We start collecting these in about another month. We send them. We're the collection point for all of the county. We fill, fill these things. Uh, you follow the instructions. Out back, there's a table, and you've got all kinds of empty boxes up on there that you can take home. You fill them with stuff, and they go around the world to different places. Having been around the world many times, I can tell you that... Uh, uh, how many of you like Advent? We're heading into Thanksgiving and Advent and Christmas Eve. How many of you like celebrating that? That's a joyful time, isn't it? But there's a lot of kids in the world that don't have what we have. We're going to talk in just a minute about how important it is that we share and bless people because God has blessed us. So fill 12 or 14 of these, okay, and bring them. So uh, I'm joking. Whatever you can afford, that'll be great. Okay, we're in a series, we're looking in Exodus, and I titled it The Way to Freedom, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, and today we're going to talk about the God of freedom. Last week we talked about an unlikely, an unusual deliverer. We studied the life of Moses and what happened. And I told you that uh, the unlikely deliverer actually wasn't Moses, it was God. And Moses didn't want to be the guy to do it. And he had five objections, and there's more coming up. He simply didn't like what God was asking him to do. And so one of the points we got out of last week, a real simple one, is that you have to remember it's not what you do for the Lord, the biblical message from beginning to end. It's not what you do from the Lord. It's what the Lord does through you because of your faithfulness. He chose Moses. Moses says, I'm not very good at speaking. And, um, and God said, who made a, a person's mouth uh, dumb? Who made a person blind or seeing? Was it not I, the Lord? The Lord takes responsibility for physical handicaps. And so he didn't have an excuse. And so he pushes him. So today we're going to step into this and look at uh, actually who God is. Because you've got to remember, remember where we are in this story. They, they've come out of Egypt a couple months before, and they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai in the sand. Uh, they're sitting on their sand dunes listening to the story on the sand dunes. They, they don't know the story. They've, the Bible hasn't been written yet. Moses is getting it. So what's happened at this point in their life is God, uh, Moses, they saw the 10 plagues, so they've seen God's power, and then the, God takes them through over to Mount Sinai and has them rest there while he begins to teach them. He's far away from all the other nations. He's far away from Egypt and far away from Canaan. That way, they're kind of in isolation. He can teach them. Have a seat. Let me explain to you all that's happened. And so he takes them. The first thing they get are the 10 commandments. We'll come to that in just a couple of weeks. They get to the Ten Commandments, and they begin to learn from the Ten Commandments that this is a God that they have never seen in the world. No, God, no nation has the laws that these Ten Commandments are laying down. And so they haven't been given the Mosaic Law yet. So last uh, two years ago, I taught through Leviticus, and I argued there that Leviticus is a paradigm. It's a blueprint for holiness, and the entire New Testament is predicated on Leviticus. It's framed along the guidelines of Leviticus. We talk about spiritual sacrifices. We talk about priesthood. That's all part of the New Testament, and that's all spelled out in Leviticus. Well, this is a paradigm for freedom, being set free, or salvation. So this story, what happens in Exodus, is the key story that explains what communion is about and what Jesus is doing. So they've heard Genesis. They've heard about the creation and the fall, and now they're understanding why life has been such a mess for them and how hard slavery is and why people are so evil and brutal and cor 
corrupt. Then they heard about um, Abraham. And uh, they may have heard some things about Abraham, but they didn't know anything about him. Again, there's no Bible yet. It hasn't been written. And so the rest of Genesis is all about God preserving the family line. So when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he didn't say, I am the God, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God. In other words, they're still alive. And we get this theme developing as they're listening that the people that have gone on before us, they're still alive, very much alive. And he is their God. He not was their God. And so then we get into Exodus, and he explains how they got into slavery, into the mess that they're in. Remember, they're sitting right here in their sand dunes, listening to the story, and they're beginning to understand it. And they probably know the story of Moses. Moses uh, knew he was going to lead them out of Egypt, and so he takes matters into his own hands and kills an Egyptian. And so the Israelites, the next day, say, one of them says, you're going to do that to us too. Well, he scatters because he's part of the Egyptian royal court, and has committed a capital offense, and the punishment is death. He's gone. So by the time God finds him in the burning bush, 40 years have gone by. He was 40 years when he killed the Egyptian, and now he's 80 years old. He's given up. It says he's on the back side, the far side of the desert, when the burning bush appears. And that's when he hears, for the first time, now I'm going to use you. And he's not interested now. Not interested. But God says, no, you are going to do it. <laughs> and so uh, he ends up doing it. So we step into the story today where God is going to explain to him why he as God is the one that's going to make it happen. And this is where we begin to learn some of our core basic principles about this, who this God is that we worship. But first we have a problem, a very troubling passage. It occurs in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, thank you for reading it, Ruth. When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that the people, that he will not let the people go. Okay, I've asked this question. Some of you know my history. Uh, For 25 years, I've studied the passages that pastors don't like to talk about. Honestly, as long as we talk about the peace, love, and happiness texts, we look a lot like Hinduism. But we're nothing like Hinduism. It's not till you get into these passages on, on uh, rape and genocide and those hard passages that you begin to see a God that is not found in any other religion. And so we have this one verse, this one verse here, I will harden his heart. This has created no end of controversy in 2,000 years of scholarship. Whole, device, whole uh, uh, denominations have divided over this. Calvinism versus Arminianism. And for those of you that are theologically trained, forgive me for being a little simple today, okay? I understand the more complex arguments, and we can talk if you want. But they've all moved in different ways. So Calvinism, as we understand it today, believes in election and predestination. You were chosen by God. And Arminianism says, now you have the free will and the free choice to decide. Well, neither one of those have made me very happy over the years. Because if you go too far in one direction, God chooses and you don't have a choice. Well, it just makes you a robot, Okay? Um, and that's not what God wanted. He gave Adam and Eve a choice, okay? But then if you move too far in the other direction, you can lose your salvation. That's what Arminianism is about. And so as I began to wrestle and study, because I wasn't happy with either side, um, I, I, don't, I don't hold to either one. I love the younger generation because they're not into labels. Thank you, the young ones, the labels, okay? Because I get asked labels. I went to Dallas Seminary. Are you progressive? Ca- dispensationalists or classic dispensationalists? 
And I've learned to say, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you tell me what you mean by that label, and I'll tell you what I am. I've yet to have a person explain it to me. They don't understand the language they're even using, okay? And so what I've told many of you is I am Arminian until the point of redemption or regeneration, and then I'm Calvinist after that. I don't think I can lose my salvation. I belong to the Lord, but I think I have the freedom to choose. Well, how do we make sense of this with this verse, and Paul repeats this verse in Romans 9. A lot of, a lot of books, tons of books have been written on this verse right here. Did God harden his heart? Well, when you look carefully into the text, you see clues that reveal the theology I think is real important for us to remember. For example, when you go back to chapter 3, verse 19, God is talking to Moses because Moses is arguing with him. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. Then from there, we move over to chapter 7, and he says it several times, this kind of stuff in verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. Okay? And so you've got this, you've got this dual thing going on, is that his heart is already hard. Already. Why? Because he's one of the gods of Egypt. I don't know this God, Yahweh. You know, who is he? You know, he's obviously not very powerful. I would have heard of him. So no way. He's not a big enough God to worry about. He's not going to let my people go. So theologians, as they look for the language to make sense of this, they frame it this way. God already knows your heart, and he's going to confirm you in your heart, whatever your position is. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 15, when God makes the covenant with Abraham. And uh, Abraham, remember the covenant? He says, Abraham, take the animals, cut them in half, kill them, cut them in half, and lay the half down. And then the, this is the way they did a covenant. Today we have a written contract. But back in the ancient world, you both walk between the dead animal pieces. When you get done, you say to each other, this is what will happen to me if I don't keep my side of the bargain. Okay? So God says, kill the animals and lay them out. So Mo, uh, Abraham knows exactly what God's doing. But then God puts him in a trance. He doesn't ask Abraham to walk down through that. And that becomes very important in just a minute. He's, and God walks through the animals. And he said, and that's what will happen to me if I don't keep my covenant. You see, we serve a covenant God who has made a promise and will not renege on it. Paul says it this way, though we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so, but he will let you choose. He will. So then Abraham says, well, how do I know that this is going to happen? And so he says, I'm going to take all your descendants, this is their land, and I'm going to take them to a nation where it's going to be mistreated. That's Egypt for 400 years. And then at the end of 400 years, I'm going to bring him back. Well, why would God do that? It's in a little tiny clause at the very end of the story. Because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full. Little tiny phrase. That explains our theology from beginning to end. God is very patient. You get to choose. But when you choose, you're done real simple. See, the Amorites were the Canaanites. Those are the people of the lands of Canaan. And back during the time of Abraham, they hadn't made that decision. That's where you have Melchizedek. That's where you have Eshcol, who sold, the pro uh, sold Abraham the property. But over 400 years, they made a decision. We're not going to serve this God. To hell with you, God. We're done. We don't want you. God said, okay, they made their decision. Come on back, Israel. And this is where you begin to see the genocide text come into play. There is a line in the sand with God. There clearly is. Ask Ananias and Sapphira, okay? He took their life that fast. And so uh, Saul, remember King Saul? 
when he brought up the witch at Endor, brought up Samuel, Samuel said this very night, God has demanded your life. So there's a line in the sand with God. And so what we begin to see in Scripture is that God's very patient, hundreds of years of patience. But when you make a decision, then your decision is made. He confirms you in that decision. That's what happened with some of the Pharisees who committed the unforgivable sin. They made their decision. And Jesus said, you crossed the line. It's too late. It's over. And that's what Pharaoh has done. He has crossed the line. So every one of the, of the plagues... Now remember, these people don't understand it. They're hearing it for the first time. Every one of the plagues is going against one of the gods of Egypt, and we're going to start looking at that next week. And so he's in, he wants to show his power because he wants to prove to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh, he wants to say to Pharaoh, you are nothing. You are not God. To the Egyptians, your gods aren't real. And to the Israelites, I am the true God. So he's going to destroy all of them. You see that um, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Now you will see, he says to Moses, what I will do. Moses had just gone to him and said, in chapter 5, you have all the brick stuff. You know, they beat them harder and harder and harder and all that sort of thing. And Moses goes back and said, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why did you send me? I love these conversations with Moses. A little bit later when he's up on the mountain, God's going to say, your people are down there uh, making a golden calf. You better go down there. They're your people. And he says, no, they're not God. They're your people. I love those, those conversations, those arguments back and forth. Why did you send me to do this? And he says, now because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. (coughs) Excuse me. So, God did not violate Pharaoh's free will. Pharaoh chose, and God took advantage of it. That's what he did with all the nations. I'm going to send, we saw this last year when we looked at the minor prophets. Actually, earlier this year. I'm going to send the Assyrians after you. They're going to kill you. They're going to rape your women. They're going to kill your children. And then I'm going to destroy them. He didn't make them do that. He took advantage of a hard heart and said, I'm going to use you for my glory. And this is what he's doing with Pharaoh. So it's now a contest. It's a contest between God and the gods of Egypt. I read 6. Now if you go all the way to chapter 12, we see it again. I will come back to this actually next week. Chapter 12, verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. So it's not simple. We learn a lesson here. You turn to Christ. It's not all uh, lollipops, as Jude says, you know. Uh, <coughs> there is a cost to be paid. God's going to use you. You become an instrument in his hands. And so the, Egyptian, uh, the Israelites, what they did was he used them. Their slavery got harder because God wanted to prove to Pharaoh and to the world that they were not gods. Pharaoh, you are not a god. So then how does he step in with Moses to convince him? Because Moses is saying, why? Why are you sending me? Have you seen this nation? Have you seen their army, their iron chariots? Have you seen all that? I don't want to go and do this. So God has to convince him that it's the right thing to do. So the very first thing that happens in chapter 6, verse 2, 6, 7, and 8, I'm not going to put them up there. 
He says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Last week when we looked in chapter 3 and the week before, in his name, I am God. There is no other God. I am. Okay? And he's beginning to explain it. Someday we'll get to the, in John, when Jesus has the seven I am statements. I am the shepherd. I am the door. I am the water. When he says that, you begin to see this I am fleshed out in our world in very rich ways. In other words, God is everything that we need and nothing more. He's everything. So he says that I am. But then he goes down this series of things and he begins to talk about who he is so Moses can understand him. Remember last week we looked at the the foreskin? Zipporah's wife threw it at his feet. That's a strange passage. And we went back and looked in Genesis 17. God said, here's the covenant with Abraham. All of your descendants must circumcise themselves. And Abraham hadn't done that. He did not really believe in the covenant. So God's not going to let him be a leader until he, he, he tries to kill him to get him to understand. You've you got a choice. You can come with me or you're over. it's over. I'll kill you. And so his wife stepped in and delivered him. So now God's going to go to the second step because he's got his attention. And he's going to say, now listen carefully so you know who I am. First thing he says is, I am a covenant God. Chapter 2. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. Whenever you see the Lord in your Bibles in English with the L-O-R-D is all capitalized, that's the personal name of God. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known fully to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where he resided where they resided as foreigners. So the first thing he says is, I am a covenant God. And that continues on throughout the whole Old Testament, all the prophets, the wisdom literature, the narrative. It's, it's translated usually uh, loving kindness. Okay, it's, it's this incredible Hebrew word, chesed. We've talked about it before. What he's saying is, I made a promise and I'm not going to break it. I'll let you break it, but I'm not going to. In other words, I am bound. He has restricted his will with his own judgment, say, I will obey my covenant. It's my covenant, and I will obey it. Now he's, now he's restricted to that from now on. And so we got this wonderful word that his love is based on his promise. That's why Paul can say, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So the first thing he says is, I am a covenant God. Then he goes on and says, but I, uh, it's not done there. I hear you. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites. This is the third time he said this to Moses now. I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. So you have to remember, God hears you, and he remembers his promise to you. That's still true today. Next thing he says to him is, I will rescue, verse 6, the beginning. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Here it is again. It's all based on that. I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And he goes from there and says, and I will grant you freedom. I will free you from being slaves to them. And then he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Now you're sitting there in the sand hearing this for the first time. And you're going, yeah, we just saw how he destroyed Egypt. We've never seen a God like this. But this is at the beginning. 
And now they're hearing the backstory of the conversation with Moses. So God promised them that's what's going to happen. Then he goes on there and says, I will redeem you. But then in the next verse, he says, I'm going to make you mine. This is stunning. I will take you as my people. Then the next thing is, I will be your God. No ancient God and no God in the ancient world ever said, you'll be my people. They lived up there. They didn't care about us. We were slaves. And he's saying, no, you belong to me. You'll belong to me. It's interesting because this concept of, of the people of God begins to grow starting right here. There's a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you and your descendants. But he chose the smallest nation. There wasn't anything special about Israel, not because they were faithful. He chose the smallest nation because if they had been successful, they would have gotten the credit. Paul uses that argument in Romans 9, 10, and 11 when he says to the Jews, you shouldn't be surprised that your nation failed. If you had won, you'd get the glory. God could have chosen any nation and the result would have been the same. You would have failed. So God chose the smallest nation specifically to reveal his glory. And he chose one, an unknown person, a criminal, to lead them out to reveal his glory. I will be your God. Then he says in verse 8, I will bless you. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are still alive. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So he's going to bless them. And so the story begins, the redemptive story. Now they understand. So then he's going to go, because you're still sitting there, next thing he's going to do is he's going to talk about the gods of Egypt and how he destroyed them with the plagues. And so now they have a clear picture of a true God that is all-powerful and all these ancient gods who are empty. And so he begins to show them that. Okay? And so we begin to enter into other discussions about this generates all kinds of questions. This explains why in Galatians 5 that um, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's for freedom. But before that, he gives us a verse. The elders talked this verse through when we were investigating putting women on the elders. He says, and this is all based on the work of Christ, and this is where God was headed with this Egyptian story. Because of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile any longer. There's no longer any slave or free. There's no longer any male or female. You are all one in Christ. You see, the whole nature of this, this slavery and leading them out is to break the iron, fallen, broken, corrupt, greedy world of power differential. It's interesting. Our world is going through a lot of discussion right now on systemic racism, it's called, okay? And it's created all kinds of controversy. Let me give you my, just my raw thoughts on it. Racism is not an anthropological term. It's a, it's a political term. The uh, anthropology, they developed that term 400 years ago when they talked about mongrels and Caucasians, but they quickly did away with it because it didn't work. I don't know of any anthropologist in the world that uses that term anymore. It's now politically a, it's now completely a political term. Okay, anthropology talks in terms of different ethnic groups. That's what DNA tests are all about, is showing you different ethnicities. So when you attach racism to the language, it becomes political. But when you look at the concept of systemic 
okay? There's nothing wrong with systemic, okay? We're talking about power differential. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually the story of the Bible. That's the story of the world. God just says, I decide who is rich and I decide who is poor. That's a power differential. Why? So power differential by itself is a neutral concept. What makes it negative is when one ethnic group uses it to hurt another ethnic group. And that's the heart of Christianity is that we should always move toward the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the widows, the orphans, the minorities, and bless them. Believe it or not, you've got to get used to the idea if you're wealthy, it's not because you, are, you deserve it or you're good. God made that decision. I decide who is wealthy and I decide who is poor. You're wealthy because he wants you to use it. If you want to understand a basic definition of greed, ask yourself, what I own, is it mine? Or did God give it to me to bless others? The earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. You are simply stewards. You're not owners. And we'll be held accountable for what we do with that. Systemic racism fundamentally is a neutral concept. It becomes negative when we use it to use our power to hurt groups that are less than us. And it becomes delightful when we use that power and wealth God has given us to bless people. It's very important to me. It's very important. When I was five years old, I went to the ice cream parlor with my dad. Couldn't read. There were two water fountains. I said, Daddy, why are there two water fountains? I said, one's for the colored people, one's for the white people. And I said, why do the colored people have their own water fountain? And he got down on his knees, and he had tears, and he said, because we don't know how to get along. One day, there'll be one water fountain. I took my kids back there a few years ago, and the two water, one water fountain over here, the two pipes are still sticking out of the wall. And I started to cry, and I took a picture of it. But from that moment on, I began to understand as a five-year-old, this is a problem. So not boasting, but Nancy and I are very invested financially and time-wise to help minorities. What did James say? This is true and undefiled religion to help widows and orphans. You own nothing. Zero. You are stewards. And that story begins right here with one ethnic group demonstrating uh, power, abusing another ethnic group with their power. And God says, no. And that's the beginning of the Christian story. And these slaves are hearing it for the first time. So, you're a steward. What do you do with what God has given you? Father, thank you for your goodness. We are so grateful. And we are so stubborn. We are a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. We admit it. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to be generous with everything you've given us, not to be greedy. Help us to take the wonderful things you've given us and use them for the benefit of those who don't have what you've given us, Lord. That's the story of the Bible. That's your story. And you've asked us to join you in it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.